Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hello, Arizona. Welcome to the Legitimate Podcast with your hosts, Mike and Rochelle Fulton, where we share our legitimate perspectives on how to get ahead and stay ahead in law, business, and life. I'm Mike Fulton. I'm the managing partner of Fulton and Royan. We're a law firm here in Phoenix that does uh, business law, medical malpractice litigation. I do some business consulting, real estate investor, do some other stuff. I get around, got some stuff to say. This is my lovely wife, Rochelle. And I'll let you introduce yourself. Perfectly capable of that. (laughs) I'm Rochelle Poulton. Uh, I'm also an attorney. I own a law firm called X Firm, where we help people with financial transaction planning. So goal-oriented task completion. That's really what we're into. So on today's topic, we're going to talk about partnership pitfalls. Partnership pitfalls. You may notice that we don't have any guests this week. We were talking about guests for this, and we decided this is something that we better handle ourselves. We didn't want to throw our friends under the bus. Yeah, <laughs> we can't. We can't be pulling our friends onto this show to tell their stories about this topic because this is going to be kind of a negative episode. We don't have a whole lot of positive things to say about business partnerships. Now, of course, there are positive business partnerships. Yes, there are. Every business partnership you get yourself involved in should be a positive one, because if it isn't, you shouldn't be doing it. But unfortunately, as attorneys, we typically, see the fallout. We see the bad ones, and it happens more often than not, I think. So we're going to go through the issues and help you understand who you should get into business with and when, and most importantly, who not to get into business with. And, and why. why. <laughs> but first, <clears throat> the rackets. Have at it. Yes. So the rackets. Um, Well, identity theft cases are still growing. It's kind of nuts. I keep getting calls. Um, We're seeing statistically they're just going up. So quick tips on what you can do to protect yourself from identity theft. And step one is credit monitoring. Get credit monitoring. Legal Shield actually has a great product, but you can get free ones everywhere like Credit Karma, FreeCreditScore.com. It doesn't even matter. But the reason why you want credit monitoring is so you know what's on your credit and you know when things shouldn't be on there. So that way you're not shocked when someone bought a car five years ago in your name and you didn't know about it. Like it's really important to monitor your credit at least every six months. It is free. Get it done. The second tip that you can do to protect yourself is when you see an irregularity, do not just dispute it with the credit bureaus. You actually have to contact the original creditor. Just because the credit bureaus deleted it from your credit report does not mean you were released from liability. You still need to address that with the creditor, have them dispute charges, clear up the account, do what needs to be done. So that way, this doesn't bite you in the butt with the lawsuit later on down the road when it's been years and you don't have docs. And the last thing you need to do to protect yourself is file a police report. If you're a victim of identity theft, you should file a police report calling the non-emergency hotline and getting that done because nothing protects you more than legal documents being in the system saying, hey, I was a victim of identity theft in 2020 is good for you. Like make sure you document, document, document. That's how you prevail on these cases. And this is how you don't ruin your credit and uh, for years dealing with identity theft issues. So credit monitoring, dispute with the original creditor and the credit bureaus and file a police report. Quick tips. Well, what if a creditor is calling you to collect a debt and you know it's not yours, but they're just being really annoying? What if you just pay them some money to make them shut up? Is that okay? 
yeah, when you do that, you just reaffirmed it. Now you're dead. <laughs> yep. It's pretty hard to argue that it's not yours if you paid on it at yeah. all. Uh, really difficult to explain to a judge or a jury why it is that you paid money to some company you've never done any business with on a debt that you claim isn't yours. So yeah. before you decide to just pay some money to make them shut up, you better think about whether you will ever try to dispute that debt at all. Because if you pay them 20 bucks, it's yours forever. And if their claim balance is tens of thousands of dollars, or it's got a huge interest rate, like a payday loan type arrangement, you're stuck with that. It's got huge consequences. So don't agree to start giving money to some company that you've never done business with in order to make an identity theft issue go away. It's not going to work. And mm -hmm. it could end up being a real disaster for you. Yes. Consult with an attorney. Lots yes. of consultations are free, like mine. Not a big deal. Identity theft <laughs> is a crime. It is fraud. It's usually a felony. Uh, chances are your report will never be followed up on and the perpetrators will never be prosecuted. Even when you know who it is. Even when you know exactly who it is and you hand it all to the police on a silver platter, they're not actually going to follow through with it most of the time. Sometimes they do. But the bottom line is that only a tiny fraction of identity theft cases actually get prosecuted. However, it really is your responsibility as the victim to treat that like the criminal offense that it is, present it to the police, dispute it with everybody, inform the creditors that you are not their customer, uh, that their customer defrauded them, and that they're stuck. It's their problem. It's not your problem. Don't pay them money. <laughs> yes, please, please, please. And this is going to continue to be an issue, and we will continue to talk yes. about it because it's still a problem. Yep. Legitimate. <laughs> Indeed. All right. On to the LBL moment. Law, business, and life. Yeah. Our law moment the has law to moment. do with LLCs. Limited liability companies, the very most popular business entity. Chances are, if you're a small business owner, your business is probably an LLC. And if it's not, you should be wondering why, why? that is. Chances are it ought to be. <laughs> if there's not a good reason for your business not to be an LLC, then it probably ought to be an LLC. So for all of you with LLCs out there or who are thinking about an LLC, you should be aware that as of September 1st, so one month ago, the LLC rules in Arizona changed. Now, actually, the change occurred a year before that, but the whole past year from January or from uh, uh, September 1st of 2019 through September 1st of 2020, that one year period was a grandfather period where LLCs that were formed in the past prior to these rule changes operated under their old rules. But now, as of a month ago, uh, all LLCs are operating under the new rules. So all of this sounds really dry and boring, and I probably sound like your accountant. Um, but, but it matters. It matters a lot. Very much like many things that your accountant may tell you that you don't like to hear either. Uh, this is pretty important stuff because the rules that we're talking about are the rules that govern how your business entity is controlled uh, and what its finances are going to be like, how those are going to operate. And the gist of this is that if you don't have a written, signed operating agreement, that's a contract among the owners of the business. So if you've got any business partners, and that's our topic today, uh, if you've got any business partners and you don't have a signed, written operating agreement with those partners that lays out all the details of how your business is operated and controlled and what the finances are like, if you don't have that, then... Arizona law provides a whole set of default rules that apply to your business. It's the rules that you're governed by if you didn't set your own rules. Arizona revised 
statutes. Yep. You can Google it. They're available for free online. ARS 293101 at SEC. Yo. Yep. Uh, and here's the deal. Since the rules changed, your business now operates differently. Yep, that very same business that you had before, if you didn't have an operating agreement, it used to work one way, and now it works a different way. The relationships between you and your business partners, the way your finances should be handled, who has what control, it's different. And you didn't choose to make that change. Our legislators did it for you. Now, you can fix all of this and make it work the old way if that's what you want, or you can make it work a completely different way that you and your business partners decide on. That is what your operating agreement is for. That's what your operating agreement does. But you need that operating agreement because if you don't have it, then your rules just changed. So this should alarm you, and it should cause you to call your attorney, and it should cause you to talk to your attorney about getting an operating agreement in place. That's what we're hoping for. (laughs) (laughs) Please do this. You don't want to find out when it's time to sell or, God forbid, a dispute arises, yeah. um, that you are in unfavorable terms. Yeah. So um, it's PSA. Get yep. an operating PSA. agreement. PSA. Consider an operating agreement now. Because if you had a pre-existing LLC, your business rules have changed unless you had a signed, executed operating agreement between the partners prior to uh, the 1st of September this year. Yep. Next up on our business moment, We've got bookkeeping. Struggles are real, man. We get it. Bookkeeping sucks. It's hard. You need to make sure that your books are in order. It is already the fourth quarter, which means it's starting time, if you haven't already started, to start planning for your 2021 year. Goal planning. It's my favorite time of year. So get your books in order. It's There's still time to do it. And uh, I hate to tell you, but there's really only eight full weeks left. There are holidays, tons of them, federal holidays and time off. So you've got two in October and then it's Thanksgiving, Christmas and New Year's right around the corner. So uh, if you're wondering why Q4 goes so fast, it's the holidays. Yep. Eight weeks. On the upside, we've got great weather now. Only only more (laughs) more weeks of 2020 to deal with. That's nice. But uh, yeah, it's still work weeks. Full work work weeks, eight full work weeks of 2020 to deal with. But now we've got some nice weather, and that is our life moment for the week. Uh, Man, you got to get outside and enjoy this. This is why it's only a hundred. It's only a hundred. It's a beautiful, (laughs) uh, refreshing hundred degrees out there. Which you know, if you've lived here for a while, is pretty darn nice. better than the 115 we've been dealing with so it is starting to get a lot cooler it's getting darker earlier uh the puppers are happy so get out there go for walks stop living only in your house take your puppers for a good walk twice a day it's what we've been doing highly recommended highly recommended good mental health all right on to partnerships on to our topic oh boy okay so first things first uh some definitional stuff here Uh, We're attorneys. So when we talk to each other about partnerships, if we say, oh, I'm dealing with a partnership or I'm I'm working on some documents for this partnership or got a consult on a partnership, we mean the legal entity known as a partnership. But that's not what most people mean. Mm -hmm. That is a legal term of art that pretty much at this point only attorneys use regularly and and probably tax professionals. Uh, When we talk about partnerships, we mean uh, more than one person or entity working together to do a business activity without creating another formal business entity. 
Uh, that's a complicated way of saying it, but that's the gist of it. Now, if you go into business yourself and you don't form a corporation or an LLC, then you are a sole proprietor. So if you just open a restaurant by yourself and you do it all in your own name with your own money, you are a sole proprietor. Uh, if you do it with somebody else, you have a partnership. That's what a partnership is. It's a sole proprietorship with more than one person. Sole proprietorship rules apply. Sole proprietorship law applies. But it's more than one person. Uh, and likewise, existing business entities can come together and do something together. And that's a partnership also. But usually called a joint partnership. And that's not what we're dealing with today. We're not dealing with JVs, nothing like that. Nope. What we are talking about are what business people typically call a partnership. And that is when you go into business with somebody else, when you work with someone else as a co-owner of a business together. Now, typically, this is not going to be a legal partnership in the sense that it's what I just described. Instead, you're going to have a corporation or an LLC, and you're going to own it together with your partners. So if it's an LLC, you're a member of that LLC, and your partner is a member of that LLC. If it's a corporation, you're both stockholders. The key is you and someone else are equity owners of a business together. This is not the same thing as having an investor. If somebody just invests money, gives you a loan for a business, but you own the whole thing, you're the only member of the LLC or the only stockholder of the corporation, that person is not a business partner with you because they don't own and control the business with you. Instead, they're just an investor. Investors can be partners. We'll get to that later. <laughs> and why you shouldn't do that. <laughs> why you generally shouldn't, but sometimes have to. Um, but the gist of what we're talking about today is what, what you do when you're going into business with somebody else. You're going to share the business ownership with them. Yeah. So I think probably the easiest place to start is a lot of people go into business and start a business because they're friends or they have a really good idea and they all want to, you know, start a business together. Typically real estate, sometimes you get something a little more complicated, like a restaurant where there's a, or dealership or something where there's a lot of moving parts. And, you know, sometimes people enter, enter into what are considered unnecessary partnerships, which is when you're in bed with somebody that you probably shouldn't be in bed with. This happens for a lot of reasons. So we'll get started on our, you know, fun list, which is basically all comes down to no one really knew what they were agreeing to when they started this thing. <laughs> Didn't really think through the consequences of what they were offering. One of the more common scenarios, I think, is when you, as an entrepreneur, maybe you've never done it before, you're a budding entrepreneur, going to start your first business of some type, and you've got a friend or two who are involved in this with you. But you're really the driving force, and you're the only one who's really going to be pulling the strings, calling the shots, uh, making this stuff get done. And you're taking the financial risk. It's your money or you're borrowing it. And really, the situation here is that you've got someone who you view as a friend, but they're more of an employee. And perhaps they are, in fact, your employee, someone who's worked for you or with you, but with you in a supervisory or, or senior capacity for a long time. And maybe you really are personal friends going back your whole lives. That's pretty common. Mm -hmm. But Recipe for disaster. It's a recipe for disaster. And this is really one of your first tough tests as a business owner and entrepreneur. And that is to draw a clear line between ownership and participation. Uh, it's your business. If you're the one taking the risks and calling the shots, it's your business. And you need to think very carefully and objectively about whether it's necessary and appropriate 
to give equity, actual ownership in that business to this other person that you're going to be working with. Just because someone is important to a business doesn't mean they should be an owner of that business. There are many very important people working in businesses who have critical roles, maybe very, even very senior roles, but they do not have any equity ownership in that business. And that's just fine. You can compensate your friend appropriately. Uh, you can still be friends. They can be happy with the arrangement, and so can you, without you needing to give them ownership in that business. And there are a lot of very good reasons to do that. Yes. And, you know, it's really hard. This is a lesson that people will tell you, that attorneys will tell you, that accountants will tell you, people will tell you, don't do business with your friends. They will scream it from the rooftops, but it's a lesson you kind of got to learn on your own because everyone thinks they're the exception to the rule and that it's going to be fine. And usually it's a tough lesson to learn. So if you're thinking about doing it, we're definitely trying to persuade you from it, but you're going to do it anyway. And it's okay. So, cause we're going to talk about what to expect when mm-hmm. you go ahead and get in business with your friends. <laughs> now, sometimes it's totally appropriate. There, yes. It may well be very appropriate. And I am involved in business partnerships with friends of mine. Um, part of the reason that it works is because I know my role and my role is to sit down and shut up in those business partnerships. I don't exercise control. I provided money in exchange for equity and I get paid. Uh, and everyone else does their jobs, and I don't talk back or interfere um, because I'm a good investor. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's like one of the most important parts of like uh, being in business with anybody else is knowing your role. It is so hard to understand that concept until you've done it a couple of times. Like if you're in a partnership with someone and someone's really good at marketing and they want you to look at what their campaign is they're not asking for your input. They're just asking for, you know, some minor feedback. A final review. A final review. (laughs) So if you want to scrap the thing and do something completely different, don't be surprised when they don't take your recommendation into account. Usually when people are, you know, in a partnership, it's not that you're both making decisions about the same thing. That's just duplicating effort. Yeah, you should not be doing that. Designate somebody to do something. Let them take the reins and uh, the other person should participate, but not necessarily try to control anything. Yep. Um, if someone's do, if someone is a, happens to be an accountant and they're doing the bookkeeping, you don't need the other person to sit there and, you know, tell you how to do bookkeeping or log in uh, expenditures. Like that's not necessary. Stay in your lane and know yeah. your role. And sometimes your role is to shut up and do nothing. Usually, very <laughs> often, your role will be to shut up and do nothing, unless you are in fact the driver in charge of something. Person. If you're the one who's in charge of it, it's your idea. You're, you know, you'll know if you're that person. Yes, you will know if you're the person who ought to be running the whole thing. If it's your vision and <laughs> you know where all the moving pieces go and how everyone operates together, that's great. Do that. Um, but you don't need to micromanage the people that you've delegated yeah. things to. But if instead you feel like you're kind of secondary and you feel like you're getting excluded from the process and maybe uh, you're not really getting heard as a business partner, uh, you should probably consider that maybe you're feeling that way because that's how it ought to be. That maybe you're getting pushed out of some conversations because you don't need to be in those conversations. Just because you're an owner of the business doesn't mean you've got to say in everything that happens. I mean, look, let's look at the, the whole big picture of this, publicly traded companies. Yep. Um, I own a bunch of stocks, got a broad portfolio. I don't vote in shareholder elections for any companies that I invest in, even the ones that send me the stuff. Berkshire Hathaway invites me every year, as they do to all shareholders. I don't go participate in corporate governance. Why? 
I don't have anything to offer. Seriously. Come on. Do I have anything to offer Berkshire Hathaway? No. I bought their stock because they do a good job. <laughs> you know, just... I mean, the easiest way to think about it, especially when you're not a huge company, but it's small, you know, it's you and a couple of other people, or maybe only you and one person is when you're not feeling heard. The first thing you should remember is to don't be hurt, like have a conversation about what you think your role is, but think about it first. Think about what you contribute to the business, what your role is, what you want your role to be, you know, come with solutions not complaints. Never lose sight of the big picture goal of participating in business ownership, which is to make money. The goal is for you to make the most money from your ownership of that business that you can. It's not to aggrandize your own ego by padding your resume with business ownership experience. That is a secondary benefit of being a business owner. You get to do that anyways. But here's the thing. You can aggrandize yourself and pad your resume without actually interfering with the operation of the business that you're participating in. (laughs) You just need to talk to everybody else And really think before you start pushing and edging your way into something and and fighting to get heard and for a seat at that table, really think about whether that's what's best for the business or or if that's just what's best for your ego, you think. Um, Very often, it's not best for anybody. Uh, Very often, you're better off deferring to the other people because everyone ought to have their own role. And if you want to really get some experience in what it's like to be in a business partnership, uh, work your way on to the board of directors for yeah. any type of organization. It'll give you a lot of insight into how people operate together and how they don't operate functionally. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of voices that want to be heard on any board of directors. There's a lot of people that with their own agendas and their own thoughts, yeah. and it can be a pretty frustrating experience. So if you haven't really been in business before and you don't really have a whole lot of experience dealing with partnerships, that's a great way to learn how to navigate those kinds of relationships without actually losing anything. That is definitely Um, And be aware that most organizations are dysfunctional in some sense. And that's not a criticism. It's just the way the process works. You tend to think of of large businesses that seem externally to operate very smoothly. You tend to think of them as well-running machines. Very few actually are when it comes down to these sorts of things. Uh, They operate well in spite of all of the internal wrangling and problems between owners uh, <laughs> is usually how that goes. Some are, in fact, smooth, well-running machines. And if you find one of those, man, study the heck out of it and learn everything. It's a unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy it. Enjoy yes, it. There are some. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of people are always wondering, you know, what does it really mean to be partners? You yeah. know, you really have to define that because a lot of people want to defer to, let's be 50-50. Yep. That's, you can't, you literally can't. Somebody has to be in charge. Uh, yeah. You need 51, 49% minimum. 50, and, 50 is a recipe for absolute disaster. And look, let's be honest here. The whole 50, 50 thing is a cop out. If you're starting out proposing, oh, well, we're just going to be 50, 50. The only reason you're saying that is because two things. One Uh, You don't want to go through the very difficult process of objectively evaluating on your own what your ownership percentage ought to be compared to the other people you're going in business with. Uh, Doing some math, figuring out several different approaches to valuing your contributions versus the contributions of the other people and determining what resulting equity percentages everyone ought to have. Does that sound hard? It is hard. But that's literally what you have to do. It ain't rocket science. It's basic accounting math. 
uh, you can figure it out, but you're going to have to spend some time doing that. And you're going to have to be uh, ruthlessly objective with yourself and with your business partners um, in assessing the value of contributions and the value of equity in this new company you're putting together. And then the second part is having some very difficult and perhaps uncomfortable discussions with your business partners in which you're going to be saying, well, actually, um, I don't think this should be a 50-50 partnership. I think this should be more like a 75-25 partnership. Uh, or even I'm willing to offer you 5% equity, uh, which is not at all unreasonable. There are plenty of people with 5% equity in small businesses. I am one of them in, in more than one business. That's a totally reasonable thing under a lot of different circumstances, often even for some very major contributions. Let me tell you, my single-digit percentage equity in a couple of things uh, cost me a whole lot, but I consider it a very reasonable deal. 50-50 um, is not at all a, a default. Mm -hmm. um, and, and equal partnership among more people than that, if you've got four or five people who are going to own a business with you, uh, chances are they should not be equal. There would be almost no circumstance where five people go into a business together. 20, 20, 20, 20. Don't and do they that. just Come all on. magically happen to have the same value? No way. No way. There's no way that you get five people together and they all go into a business and they all are contributing exactly the same value to that business. Who's so, in charge? Yeah. And who's in charge? Like you got to be uh, a little more practical yes. when you're dealing with business arrangements like that. And it just pays in spade to have these conversations up front instead yeah. of when conflict arises and conflict will arise, especially if you don't talk about things like how money is distributed. Absolutely. Especially if you've got someone who invested, you know, let's say something small. You started a small work from home business and you had an investor who gave you 10 grand. Well, when do they get paid back? Do they yeah. get paid back first? Do they get paid back over a period of years? Do they ever get paid back? You know, these are the types That's of conversations right. you want to have with somebody up front. What if the business goes under? You know, what yeah. if it's a huge success? Do they get more than their $10,000? Like what kind of equity to interest did they have? Is it really fair that they get half? Those are kinds of things that you need to plan for is for when things go really well and for when things go worst case scenario. And as Rochelle is throwing out all of those questions and possibilities, what's flashing through my head are all the provisions that I have drafted in numerous operating agreements and investment agreements to deal with these exact questions for a whole bunch of people's businesses. And guess what? None of them are the same. Even with the new iterations of the same business, it's different because all of these are situationally specific decisions. You have to analyze each investor or partner's contributions exactly the way the business is going to work, who's doing what. Uh, tons of factors go into that. And it's all negotiated. There are multiple parties here and everyone has to agree to it. So all of these things are negotiated. And there are no standard terms, really. Mm -hmm. So everything is wide open in terms of what you can do uh, with these kinds of agreements. So, yeah, it's hard. But Partnerships fail because of money. Yes. They go sideways because someone feels uh, cheated or feels unfairly compensated or starts to resent someone because they feel they're overcompensated. Yeah. It's money in business. I mean, that's kind of the point. So making sure that there's a clear understanding of that from the beginning is really important. Yes. And that that understanding is in fact written in an enforceable executed set of contracts. 
uh, there are two aspects here. You have to actually have the understanding. And that is a hard part yeah. because of how wide open it is. And very often you won't have experience with these kinds of arrangements beforehand. So figuring out with the people you're going to go into business with how it's actually going to work, it's really tough. Yeah. Uh, and there's only so much help attorneys can give you on that because we can tell you what your options are, what's typical. But there are endless you, options. But the options are literally endless and you're working with unique individuals who will have their own motivations and agendas. And so, you know, you got to wheel and deal and be a negotiator and get something done is what it comes down to. And that, yeah. that's your job as the entrepreneur to make it happen. A lot of people will come to, you know, me or to Mike and, and ask us, well, what would you do in my position? Well, I'm not in your position. Yeah. So I can't really advise you. That's kind of a question you've got to answer for yourself. So if you're thinking your attorney's just going to draft you and take care of all of this for you, they're not because your situation is extremely unique. What your motivation is, what you're trying to get out of this is unique to you. And it's got to be drafted that way. Now, I will say though, when Rochelle says that's not what attorneys do, they're not going to tell you. I actually will tell you those things if you're my client. Um, I do provide that kind of consulting, but generally prefer not to. My first level approach is to advise you on what your options are and get you to make the deal and the decisions <laughs> because that's better. You're, you're the, the business person and ultimately those kinds of negotiations and, and understanding the arrangements is something you've got to do. So I always try that first. And if it's just not going to work and decisions really need to be made and the client really wants to defer to me on that, I will advise on what I think I would do in that situation. Um, and often I end up advising on what I would do uh, and clients end up doing it. Um, but the bottom line is it's better for you as a business person to think for yourself on these things, to negotiate for yourself on these things, and to fully understand the relationship that you are creating with your business partners. And that only works if you're the one doing it. Yes. And I think, you know, most of it comes down to the awkwardness yes. of having these kinds of really tough conversations with people that you consider friends or colleagues that you have a lot of respect for sitting down and having a conversation about money and how it's going to be divided when things go well. And when things go poorly is a hard conversation. It yeah. just is. There's no way to, you know, avoid the little bit of anxiety that you're going to feel, but you got to do it. And especially if you know the conversation is going to be not, not well received, that what you're proposing is not something that your potential partner is going to like, that's tough. And our, everyone's inherent conflict avoidance tendencies uh, makes us want to not have those conversations. Um, it's my job to have conversations like that with people uh, as a <laughs> business and litigation attorney. So I do it, but I'm, you know, I can't tell you that I enjoy uh, those kinds of interactions. I'm just willing to do it for money. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's about it. Um, now, we've got in our notes here, we have notes. You, you guys can't tell, but we've got notes up behind the camera here to keep us on track. And one thing that we put down on our notes to remind everyone about is that partnerships are financial arrangements governed by contract. And this is important. Because what we were just talking about with the emotionality of these sorts of interactions with your friends and business partners, um, this is something you've got to keep at the forefront of your mind also. And that is that you are making a financial arrangement by contract. That's what your partnership is. 
it isn't an emotional friendship relationship. It isn't a, a journey through life with your business partners where you grow together and you learn and, and you respect each other. And you will. You will. That's all great. All that's going to happen too. But that's not the essence of your partnership. The essence of your partnership is the actual written, signed agreement between you guys about who owns what and how y'all get paid. That's the partnership. So focus on it and always bring yourself back to those fundamentals that your business relationship is a financial transaction governed by contract. And you always got to keep that in mind while you're dealing with the touchy-feely personal stuff and maintaining your network and friendships. Yes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a tough balance, you know, but that's, you know, kind of what a lot of people get into without realizing it. The terrifying part for us is when people have been doing it for years and they don't have anything in place, yes. not even an LLC. And it's like, oh my gosh, what are you doing? <laughs> Literal partnerships, just unregistered businesses with several people throwing stuff into it. Nobody really wrote anything down and just got these courses of action going back decades. It gets to be a mess, but... It literally gives me anxiety. Yeah. <laughs> like, please don't do that. Yeah. Uh, Especially so, when you have to untangle it, because usually when it gets to my office, you know, I'm dealing with financial crisis. Yeah. You know, I am just cleaning things up, making things better so people can move forward, but you've got to work through the muck. And when there's, you know, no limited liability protection and you're dealing with lawsuits and UCC filings and liens and business tax filings and just nightmare stuff. It's like, man, I know you kind of wish you had like a business entity and I can't like go back and undo what's been done. I can help you fix it, but it's a, I would prefer if you know, you just talk to an attorney before yeah. you start it. <laughs> uh, that, it's an important point. You cannot retroactively create a business entity. It either exists in advance or it doesn't. So if you start doing business without forming a business entity first and setting up your structure, um, you're just hanging out there uh, in your unregistered partnership land with no limitations of liability and all kinds of tax issues to deal with. And it's just a whole big mess that you cannot unscrew retroactively. You, it's never too late to get it in order going forward, but you can't fix problems that have already happened that way. You can't undo, you can't undo. problems. You can't make them disappear. We can fix retroactively. everything. Yeah, we can there's fix always it. options. Yeah, we can fix it. You may not like the solution, yeah. <laughs> but there's always options. Um, yeah. I guess... So, our next point that we've got there is unnecessary partnerships. Yeah. And, and this gets back to kind of what we opened with, and that is very often we find that clients have engaged in unnecessary business partnerships. That is, they've got somebody they're in business with who's a co-owner uh, and they really don't need to be. Especially with spouses. Yeah. Like just because you're married and your husband started a business doesn't mean you should be part of the business Not and vice versa. Yes. Rochelle and I have numerous business entities for a variety of reasons and some of them we are both members of, and some of them we are not. Uh, and all of those are carefully made decisions, but I think by and large, our businesses are separately held. Mm -hmm. And there are a lot of very good reasons for that. Mm -hmm. And if you're married and you and your spouse are both involved in businesses, uh, you should be seriously considering whether your businesses should be co-owned if they are, um, because very often that's not favorable. Um, unless... I mean, I, it depends a lot on your relationship, and and I don't want to give you too much advice uh, over a podcast here because 
it's all unique to it's you. all unique to your own personal situations but if you have a strong relationship with a high level of trust and you think your marriage is going to continue to last indefinitely uh, as we do then it is often advisable to utilize separate property ownership um, for a whole variety of reasons Careful planning is, you know, if you want more info, email us, call us, we can talk to you all about it. But incidentally, I I guess this is a point. (laughs) This only occurred to me after it came out of my mouth. I think a lot of people would tend to think that if you have a great, strong marriage and a really good relationship, that you should be business partners together, (laughs) that you should both be members of all your LLCs, that you should share it, you know, share everything. No, it's the opposite. (laughs) It's exactly the opposite of that. No. The co ownership protects you from divorce, basically. I, I mean, that's the biggest <laughs> biggest advantage of both being members of your companies is that you co-own them in case of divorce, whereas with separate property, it's separate. But separate property provides significantly improved protection from potential creditors and liabilities. A lot of good reasons to have that kind of isolation. Mm-hmm. So, And we're well, lawyers. We knew yep, what we were doing. Exactly. You know, it's we think about it. Yep, we think about it. We talk about too. business all the time. Yes. This is what we do. This is like a Absolutely. dinner conversation for us. So I think formalities. Formalities. People always are wondering, like, if you can just ignore the formalities. Like, oh, it's just a formality. Yeah, you got to do it. That's why it's called a formality. You Like, you literally have to do the thing. You got to yes. follow the formalities. So when you're setting up a business, just the basics, get incorporated. Usually that means an LLC. You need a business bank account. You can't just operate everything through your personal account. Uh, if you execute a lease agreement, it should be in the name of the business, not you personally. Man, that's important. When and, you form an LLC, yeah. the address shouldn't be your house. Yeah. What are you doing? Yeah, don't, don't, do don't do that. Preferably don't do that. I mean, here's the catch. I, we, we can talk about LLC formation for a, a whole different episode, but the catch is your business address has to be an actual physical address, not a P.O. box. So You can get a P.O. box with physical address, though. You can, but you're not supposed to use it, but you could, and people do. Um, but the gist of it is you're supposed to have a physical address at which your business occurs, and if you don't have an actual office or a real physical business with a real address that's not your house, then you're kind of stuck. You either got to get one or use your house. Uh, if you use your house, it's in the public record and everyone can look it up. If you use a P.O. box with a street address, then technically you have not complied with the Arizona statutes, but nobody's ever going to figure it out. Is that about a fair statement? Sure. Yeah, I think that's about right. Uh, But let's not take that as legal advice, shall we? Yes, we're not your (laughs) lawyers, so don't make it weird. Anyway, along with that is like the commingling. People are like, oh, that's just a formality. No, 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 it's a big deal. Like you can't pay for your business expenses out of your personal account any more than you can pay for your personal expenses out of your business account. It's a big no-no. It's called piercing the corporate veil. They will do it. The creditors will come after you and make this argument. And it's pretty hard to overcome. I mean, here's the bottom line. You can argue all day about whether or not you're commingling and you're whatever it is that you did reimbursing yourself for your personal credit card expenses on your business, whether that really constitutes inappropriate commingling that would allow piercing the veil or not. Here's the problem. This only comes up in litigation. Mm -hmm. Judges decide this stuff. Juries decide this stuff. Mostly judges. Yeah. You cannot afford and should never end up in a position where you're having to make these arguments. You just don't ever want to go down that road because typically 
there isn't going to be enough in dispute to justify making the arguments. And you're going to end up getting sued along with your business uh, by some creditor. And the only way you're getting sued by creditors like that is if you're in financial distress, at which point you definitely can't afford business litigation on an issue of veil piercing and commingling of funds and observation of formalities. Uh-uh. This does not work out in your favor. Uh, just do the things in the first place. Just do it right from the start, and then nobody will have those arguments to make, and you won't have to defend against those arguments, and you won't end up in that position, and it'll just be a whole lot cheaper and easier, and everything will go smoothly. Yes, formalities are there for a reason. Follow them. Do them. Yeah. Make it look like a business. Make it look like even more of a business than it really is. <laughs> Run your little tiny business like a Fortune 500 company. Do it right. Oh, man. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh, the fun topic. The no contract. Yeah. Yeah. I think I want to talk about when you want to sell your business yeah. to a third party and you're willing to finance the sale. Seller financing. So this is something that we were just chatting about right before the show. We hadn't had it on our list, but here's, here's what happens. Um, you've got a business and it's going well and you want to cash out and you list it for sale. You get a buyer. Uh, you're going to sell this business, but the buyer wants seller financing and you're willing to provide that. Hey, why not? Right. You know, you're going to make some interest on it. Uh, the seller is willing to pay you 12%. Um, or they're willing to pay you profit, equity, splitting yep. some, whatever. whatever. There's a million. Lots of different ways. To Endless. Tons of ways Endless to structure ways. seller financing. But here's the bottom line. If you agree to sell your small business to a new owner using seller financing, you are effectively entering a business partnership with that person. The end result is that they control your business, used to be your business, not yours anymore. They control this business, and you only get paid if they do well, if the business does well. And that fundamentally is the same thing as you being a minority partner in their business. You have no control the result is the same. And, yeah. you know, the worst case scenario that we see and why we're talking about it is usually it means you get screwed. You yeah. spent years building up this business and it only took a year for someone to tank the revenue, usually because they're siphoning off your clients to some other entity that you have no interest in. Um, sometimes they're just defrauding you out of it. So it's really important that if you're going to do these deals that one, you you have legal representation. Yes. You need a lawyer. Like it's not, if you spent this much time building a business, why would you not protect it? Seller financing deals on small businesses are complicated. Even Extremely. Si even simple ones are complicated. It's not like selling a house with seller financing. With a house sold on seller financing, there is still a house. You still have collateral. Yes. You can take it, something back. It's pretty hard for somebody to completely destroy that house. And you're going to have a clause in that agreement that requires them to have insurance on it anyways. So if they do completely destroy that house, you're still going to get paid on your note by an insurance policy. Well, guess what? On a business sale, there is no such thing. You can't insure the future value of a business. That's just an option contract. Nobody's going to do that. So instead, you're turning over this business that you have successfully cultivated to some new owner who may or may not totally jack it up immediately. And guess what? That new owner didn't have enough money to pay you up front. That's why there's seller financing. If they had enough cash to pay you the wholesale price, 
they wouldn't have taken your 12% seller financing deal. That's not a good deal for anybody who's got the cash. And they couldn't get financing. Yeah, they couldn't get a loan anywhere else either, right? Because bank rates are way lower than seller financing. Bottom line is- It's a red flag. Small business seller financing only happens when the buyer requires it because it's an unfavorable deal compared to any other way of paying for that transaction. It's very commonly done. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. No. But you need to, to have open eyes to the reality of that situation. And the reality is that that's a loan that they couldn't get on better terms elsewhere for money that they don't have to pay you for a business that you're not going to run anymore, that they're going to be responsible for. And the only way you get paid the rest of your money is if that business remains profitable and they make that money so that you get paid. That's a partnership, like it or not. And a terrifying one. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, unfortunately, all the cases I know of, you know, where I've seen this scenario went poorly. It often goes poorly. That's why I got involved was after the fact, you know, and it's really sad when it happens because, you know, if they taint your online reputation and now you've got nothing but one star reviews and you want to take the business back, you don't have your clients, you don't have your client list, you don't have revenue, you may not have equipment anymore, you may not have anything really to recoup anymore like pick up what are you gonna do and um, especially if that's your retirement plan yeah it's heartbreaking please don't please please consult with an attorney and it gets super messy because chances are you sold it as an asset purchase Mm -hmm. so the ongoing entity is not really the same entity but you may still own the other one and then when you take it back you're gonna have to do that as an asset transfer to a new entity I mean, it's just a huge, tax big mess. liability. Yeah, you got tax problems. You got all kinds of issues because if you end up having to take a business back after a seller financing transaction that fails, that's a business in distress at that point. They're insolvent. That's why you took it back. They were unable to pay you on your seller financing deal. And that typically means that they haven't paid their landlord. They haven't paid their suppliers. The utilities may be shut off. I mean, that's an insolvent business that's shut down at that point. It failed. So you're coming in and taking that back just in the worst shape you can possibly imagine. And then you got to try to salvage some value out of your collateral there. It gets to be a real mess. So what does this mean? What this means is that when you consider a seller financing deal on your small business, you need to really be thinking of this as an ongoing partnership with the new owner throughout the entire term of that note. That means you need to pick that new owner carefully. Just because they're willing to buy your business and pay you the price and they really want to do it doesn't mean that this is a deal you should do. Of course, if they're going to get the money elsewhere and just pay you up front, that's fine. They can go tank it. Once you've sold it, it's not yours anymore. But as long as you've got an interest in it, (laughs) you better make sure it's going to stay profitable. So tips for success on a seller financing deal sell to somebody experienced. If they're doing a roll-up in your field, you know, if you're a small HVAC company, for example, and you get an offer uh, to get bought out by someone who is collecting HVAC companies locally, um, but they're cash-strapped because they've just bought 10 of your competitors in the last two years and they want to roll you up too, heck yeah, do that deal. Hey, why not do some kind of a swap where you get equity in their business? Uh, (laughs) There are all kinds of ways to set that up. Now, that is a seller financing deal you can swing. But if it's someone who's never done it before, using the HVAC company example, it's one of your techs, let's say, and it's someone who wanted to have their own business and they got a down payment from their uncle uh, and you're going to finance the rest, man, you better be careful about that 
that is the recipe for disaster because that person is going to learn all of the hard lessons of business ownership using your business while owing you money. And that's not a good situation for you or them. Yeah. If you did succession planning and you guys knew this day was coming, that's a totally different issue. Totally different. But, you know, a lot of people who are employees want to own their own business one day, but they have no idea that it is a 24-7 job that that never ends and you wear all of the hats and make all of the decisions. And that working in a business is completely different than owning that business. That's something that comes up a lot in the kinds of small businesses that I deal with, um, contracting companies and uh, things like that, where it's a, a skill that you got to learn over the course of a career. And people think that because they learned that skill and they're good at the thing, that they should own the business that does that thing. And bottom line is there's a huge difference between doing the thing and owning the business that does the thing. Uh, it's like Elon Musk was recently talking about uh, building an electric car isn't the hard part. Building factories that build electric cars is the hard part. So just because some competitor came out with a cool prototype doesn't mean they are even remotely in the same ballpark because the hard part is the logistics, the factory, the infrastructure, the finance, not the doing of the thing. Yes. And it's that way for tiny businesses, just the way it is for Tesla. Yes. There's so many, there's so many great books out there about, you know, mindsets and how people interact with each other in a business. So just keep that in mind when you're looking at your exit plan, right? Like you're not going to own the business till you die, right? Like that can't be your plan. You need an actual strategy. You know, are you going to sell it? Is it, are you going to give it away? Are you going to fail? Are you really just going to wrap it up and do nothing with it ever again? Like the whole point of having the business is to have an asset you can eventually sell. One of the points potentially. Yeah. Although got to say in some industries, uh, winding it down and wrapping it up is a viable strategy. You may be in an industry where you know your business is time limited and something will happen in the future that will mean that you need to shut down. And if you can foresee that on the horizon, you better plan for it in advance. Don't be executing 10-year leases. Uh, If you think your business is going to last two years, uh, you got to plan to be able to pull the plug and wrap it up if it's the kind of business where you may have to do that. Yes. Knowing kind of like the life of your business in advance and kind of what your goals are in the long run is really important, especially if you have partners. You know, if someone, if you own a restaurant together and someone believes they're going to retire there, you know, they are going to work until they die. But the other person's like wants to sell and franchise out after five years. That's a mismatch in vision. Like you just want to make sure that you're both on the same page with what you want to accomplish. So, Or if you're not on the same page, have a plan for how it works for both of you. Yes. So if you want out and your partner wants to retire with that business, you need a plan for transition of your equity to your partner. Piece of cake, just sort it out. But again, this comes back to having conversations that may be uncomfortable. That may be a difficult thing to really plan out in the same way that it's difficult to plan out what happens if your business partners die, what happens if your business partners become incapacitated or disabled, or, and this one sucks to have to think about, but you better think about it. What happens if your business partner turns out to be a horrible, despicable criminal? What happens if your business partner ends up being prosecuted for a a terrible, terrible, disgusting thing? Uh, It happens. It happens. And it doesn't even matter if they're innocent. No. Like it tanks your business. It tanks your business. Uh, you get tons of media attention that you really just can't afford to have. Yeah. Are you going to um, pay for those attorney's fees? Like how does that work out? All of that needs to be in your yes, operating agreement. Absolutely. Something you've got to consider every single time. 
I know. Um, so, yeah. Such bummers. Absolutely. So we mentioned a little bit earlier that there's a difference between being a partner and being an investor. And then I talked about how I'm in a partnership, uh, several partnerships, and I'm just an investor. So what does this really mean? What are we talking about? Well, somebody who comes to the table with money, but they're going to get equity in exchange for their money, is a partner, but they are also an investor. And in most instances, that person is going to be mostly an investor, meaning they really are not going to be controlling the business. If all they're bringing to the table is cash, then there's no particular reason they ought to have a bunch of say in how things run. Because having money is not necessarily well correlated with knowing how to run a particular business. As an example, just because you can afford to invest the cost of construction uh, in a restaurant doesn't mean that you know anything useful at all about running a restaurant. And in fact, there are plenty of restaurant owners who do not really know how to run restaurants and instead rely on management staff that they hire to manage and operate their restaurants. And in fact, most large restaurant chains are operated that way. The people who own them are not restaurant operators. The people who own them are investors. They've picked investment in those businesses because the businesses perform well financially, not because they're good at running restaurants. Jeez, come on. <laughs> we don't they have think, a good team. Yeah, they have a and good team. And they trust their team. And they trust their and team they and they let them do their jobs. their role. Yes. So investors who bring money to the table in exchange for equity in your business. So you, you want to start a business, but you don't have enough cash. You go out to the network of people that you know. Uh, you know, some of them are professionals who are well-to-do or have good stock portfolios. And you say, hey, man, um, I'm going to start this business. Uh, I, I'm trying to raise a million dollars. Will you come in for $100,000? Uh, and he, I'm going to offer you equity. And here's what I think it's worth. And that is a difficult thing to come up with right there, what you think it's worth. But you got to have a proposal. Now, that's going to be an investment deal, and that person is definitely your business partner, and they definitely need to execute the operating agreement and so on. But that's very different than if you and your best friend both decide to start a restaurant together. That's a whole different kind of partnership because perhaps neither of you are going to be contributing much capital, or maybe your capital contributions are equal, but you both grew up in the industry. Um, you both are going to be controlling the place. One of you is going to run the kitchen. The other one's going to run the business operations. Uh, whatever it's going to be like that, that's a totally different dynamic in that partnership. And you've got to know in advance how you're going to want to handle these things and, and think about what everybody's role is going to be and make sure that that's clearly defined both in the written documents and also in your conversations and your relationships with the people that you're going to be in business. Because what you both can't do is both run the kitchen and no one run the business. Yep. And that's usually what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yep. It is. Uh, compensation. Compensation. So um, this is an important one. We've just been talking about who does what in the business. Two different kinds of compensation for business owners. Um, you've got, on the one hand, uh, distributions of profits. So the business makes money and the owners get paid that money. Whatever the excess money is, the excess cash flow that doesn't have to go out to pay for the staff and the rent and the utilities and everything else. Um, that's profit. And it get, it goes to the owners and it goes to the owners typically in proportion to their equity. So if you own 20% of the business, you get 20% of the profits. Now, what if you own 20% of the business, but you're the guy who runs the place? 
you you're in there every day actually running the operation and the other three partners who own 80% of the business are never there and have no active role. Does that feel fair to you that you only get 20% of the profits, even though you're the one running it every day? Well, it should feel fair because it is. You own 20%. You get 20% of the profits. The catch is you also, separately from your ownership, have a job at that business. And you should be getting paid for that job. You should be getting compensated hourly or salary for the actual work that you perform in that business. And it should be market rate, fair compensation for the job you're providing. So if you're the general manager of a restaurant, you ought to be getting paid a salary on W-2 wages uh, that is appropriate for a general manager of that restaurant. You separately get your 20% distributions as an owner, separately. And your role as an owner is separate from your job in that restaurant. It's important to maintain that separation in your own head and also make sure that your partners understand that separation. It avoids a lot of disputes and a lot of feelings of inequity that can result later. Yes. And tax issues. And tax <laughs> issues. You never want to have tax issues. Yeah. Uh, we'll talk about employees and all the other ways businesses go wrong in a different episode. But yeah. this is kind of like, we feel like a whole episode on partnerships is really important because we keep running into these problems. And as much as we tell our clients not to do this, we thought, hey, let's just do a whole episode on partnership pitfalls. And we won't bring in our friends for this one because then they have to tell their stories about their partnerships <laughs> that went wrong. And no one wants to, hear, like, we don't want to do that to our friends. Nope. You know, we don't want, they don't want to throw their business partners under the bus or their active partners under the bus. Nobody wants to do that, but this is the reality. Like partnerships are hard. There's more reasons to say no than yes. And if you are going to say yes, just make sure that you've got your operating agreement and that you have those conversations over dinner, over a Zoom call, over a bottle of wine, whatever you need to do to get it done. But those conversations absolutely have to happen. More reasons to say no than yes. That is a great point. Very important. If you can avoid having a partner in your business, you should avoid that. I think that's a fair statement, and I don't think there are really many exceptions. Uh, if you, as the person who has the impetus to start the project, or or you're going to buy the buy an existing business, whatever it is, if you're the driving force, rather than thinking about who you can bring in as a partner, and rather than thinking about who you could offer equity to, think about who you can avoid bringing in as a partner, who you can avoid giving equity to, uh, what other arrangements you can make to achieve just as good of a result in a negotiation to motivate the people who are involved just as effectively that does not involve you giving up any equity in your business. Um, certainly many partnerships are very beneficial, but here's the catch. You should only be getting involved in the partnerships that are very beneficial. And that's not most of them. Uh, most of them are kind of um, unnecessary and a drag, I think is a reasonable statement. Uh, a lot of partnerships could be avoided with a different solution that would have produced better results. And just because someone asks you to be a partner in their business doesn't mean you have to say yes. No. You know, you just think about it. As um, an investor on the investor side, you know, often people think you want to go for maximum equity. That's not always true. You may be better off with a note. You may be better off as a creditor of that business than an owner of it. Um, or if you've got an arrangement where it's both. Uh, where you've got both equity and also a note from the business, you may prefer to emphasize repayment of capital and interest on the note rather than equity uh, compensation. A lot of different ways to do it, but you ought to be thinking about whether you really want to have the the equity ownership. <laughs> um, on so, that point, one, one quote that I think is worth remembering is that 
most ideas are bad, most businesses fail, and most partnerships suck. <laughs> most seeds do not grow into mighty trees. Your job as a business owner is to pick the right ones, which will. Just because you have an acorn doesn't mean you have a tree. Yep. Like, business is hard. So pick the right acorn and grow it. And that <laughs> is the hard part. Well, I think that'll do it for us today. Thank you, Sammy, for your kind comments. Much love to you there. And thanks for tuning in to Legitimate. The show is brought to you by Xfirm, helping people and businesses recover from financial, well, crisis. So you can find us online at xfirmlaw.com. And I'm Mike Poulton with the law firm Poulton & Arroyan. You can find us online at www.pnlaw.pro. 